Confessions on here while we're recording? No. <laughs> All right, chapter 36, would somebody read 1 to 7? And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has spoken against you, aha, and the everlasting heights have become our possession, therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God. For good reason they have made you desolate and crushed you from every side, that you should become a possession of the rest of the nations, and you have been taken up in the talk and the whispering of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys, to the desolate wastes and to the forsaken cities, which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations which are round about. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the rest of the nations, and against all Edom, who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. Six or seven. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel, and say to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath, because you have endured the insults of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. All right. Now, we've got a contrast. Chapter 35 was against Mount Seir. Mount Seir was in what country? Edom. And Edom was a symbol for what? Esau and the Edomites were basically what? The representative of the enemies. Yes, they were the enemies of God's people. They hated God's people. The Edomites were going to be destroyed. Mount Seir versus chapter 36 what? The mountains, the mountains of Israel. And the mountains of Israel back in chapter 6 had been denounced for their idolatry. But now, God is going to pronounce a blessing on the mountains of Israel. And three t various times here, God starts to pronounce the blessing, but he actually, in these first seven verses, manages mostly to do what? He repeats some things against Edom. Yes, and against the nations that were enemies mm -hmm. of Israel. He's doing this therefore business. He says, prophesy to the mountains of Israel, O mountains of Israel, heard the word of the Lord. And then he says, in two, because the enemy spoken against you and said, these heights are our possession, therefore prophesy and say, you know, for good reason, they've made you desolate and crushed you, and so forth. Therefore, mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord uh, to all these 
who have uh, mountains and so forth that become a prey and derision of the rest of the nations, that he's going to destroy Edom, and therefore, and therefore, and therefore, he's going to bring his wrath on the nations that were against God's people. So really, he has a hard time getting through that to get to the point of the blessings he's going to give to Israel. So five times he says, therefore, and he just blazes out against the enemies of God's people. God is going to bring them down. He's going to punish them for what they've done to God's people. Because he's going to bless his people. You know, God lets his people be punished. He lets them be chastened. But the bottom line is they will be blessed. That is where that's going. I noticed that um, it's it's really hard to miss who's saying this in this mm-hmm. section. I mean, hear the word of the Lord, says the Lord God. Therefore, says the I mean, over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's just very clear who's saying this. It just stuck me while I was reading. It's also very pretty poetry. Though, but Mountains, hills, ravines, valleys, wastes, forsaken cities, things like that. Mm-hmm. It is. It's, uh, it's very balanced. What he says, therefore, isn't he talking about Israel? Well, yes and no. He talks about Israel, except what does he keep turning back to? For example, in 6, Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel. Say to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken of my jealousy and my wrath, because you have endured the insults of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. So he's talking about the mountains of Israel, except he keeps talking about how the enemies have reproached them and how he's going to bring them down. That is a blessing to Israel. I mean, part of the blessing of Israel is he gets their enemies off their back. Like in three. Yes. Saying for good reason they did this to you. Yes. But, therefore, verse four, the Lord is going to, you know, bring about punishment, four and five, to Edom and to the rest of the nations that are against you. So he's talking to Israel and yet he keeps reverting back each time to the enemies and how they were going to be brought down. Comments and questions. Sorry, I didn't catch that. Can you say that again? For good reason. (laughs) For good reason, like, is that because Israel was bad? Bad? Like it was a good reason that they made them desolate and crushed them? That's the way I'm reading it. Yes, that's right. In three, God had chastened Israel by the rod of the nations. Okay. But the nations had really abused their commission, and God was going to turn it back and punish the nations that were abusing his people. Okay. So he had good reason for bringing them against them, but now the tables were being turned, and God was punishing those who had been his uh, paddle. Okay. Is that what you just said? Oh, I don't know. Okay, well. I'm sure I said it differently this time, anyway. 
Okay, well, I get it now. All right. Any other comments or questions? Okay, 8 to 15. But you, O mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be a cultivate you shall be cultivated and sown. And I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the cities will be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast, and they will increase and be fruitful, and I will cause you to be inhabited as you were formerly, and will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men, my people Israel, to walk on you and possess you, so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you are a devourer of men and have bereaved your, your nation of children. Therefore you will no longer devour men and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. And I will not let you hear insults from the nations any more, nor will you bear a dis disgrace from the peoples any longer, nor will you cause your nation to stumble any longer, declares the Lord God. All right, now look at what God's going to do for Israel. In 8 and 9, what was he going to do? Yeah. Cultivating, sowing. Yes. They're going to be essentially fruitful. How did, what does he call them now? Barren? Not, not now. My people. My people Israel, which is encouraging. And look at verse 9. And compare it with 35.3. What, what's the contrast between Edom and Israel? Between 35.3 and 36.9. That's one thing. There's another one. For you versus against you. Yeah, 35 3, I'm against you, Mount Seer. 36 9, I am for you, Israel. That makes all the difference in the world whether God's for us or against us. And that's the secret to their being fruitful and being blessed. They're going to be populated. Look at verses uh, 10 through 12. What's the operative word there? Multiply. multiply. And what's he going to multiply? Men. Yes. Beasts. Yeah. And especially men. There's going to be so many people that are going to multiply in the house of Israel. Um, what does that remind you of? The idea of, uh, you know, multiplying and increasing and things like that. Rabbit. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yes. That's what God said to do in the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. And now God's going to make them fruitful and multiply them. He's going to have a new creation uh, in his people. And it reminds me a little bit of the idea of go and preach the gospel to all the nations. And uh, how that God was going to grow his nation by bringing, bringing people from all places uh, in and making them God's people. So this is part of the blessing of what God would do for Israel. Do you have a comment or question through 12? What's the change that's going to take place in 13 and 14? Yeah. What does that mean? 
Does that remind you of anything? Well, first, who are, who are they talking to you? Are they talking to the mountains? I think so. So the mountains are the devourer of men and the bereaver of children. Yeah, and they aren't going to be any longer. Look back at Numbers 13. Can you explain first why you say it's the mountains? That's what he's been talking to. Mm -hmm. Look at 8, yeah. What numbers? Numbers 13.32. This is when the spies went into the land and came back, ten of them giving a bad report. What did they say about the land? It devours its inhabitants, but it's not going to be a devourer anymore. Sort of like the land had been jinxed, but it's not now. So the land's got a history of devouring its inhabitants, but God's going to transform the land, and it won't any longer devour and bereave the nation of their children. There's going to be a fundamental change in the attitude of the land toward its people. You know, it's 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 going to they're not going to the land's not going to devour the people anymore. And then in 15, what change is going to take place? It's going to be death. Yeah, uh, that, no, I pull a James on it, eh? <laughs> what? Verse 15. Sarah said, oh, it was going to be death. Oh, that'd be me. Yeah, but not after Thursday. <laughs> Next week, if he says what, we say, you better pay attention. <laughs> so they're going to go from being a, a bereaver, uh, in verse 15, what, what are they going to do? What's going to happen? They're not going to be able to hear, well, they're not, they're, I think the, it says you're not going to hear insults anymore, but I think it's going to be, there aren't going to be insults. To be heard, yes. The, they're going to be free from reproach, free from the scorn and the ridicule. I mean, look at uh, 36.2, uh, 36.3, the talk and the whispering of the nations, them saying, aha, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, the insults of verse 7 and verse 6, you know, they're not going to have to endure all the ridicule and the humiliation anymore of the nations because God's going to bless them now. So, you know, the first part of Ezekiel, God's going to punish them. Now God's going to take away their punishment and bless them. Comments and questions? Is that still the mountains who are not going to be insulted? And probably so, but in this case, the mountains probably stand for the nation. Yeah. A lot of, in much of this, they do. You know, the mountains of Israel is where the people of Israel are. In verses 13 and 14, they'll use almost the mountains versus the people. Now, is, does this mean that never again Israel will be insulted? Yes. Sort of. Sort of. Well, you got a couple things going on here. Um, one is, who's Israel? This is blending into the Messianic fulfillment to the true Israel. And, you know, God is going to give a, you know, higher calling, higher status, a holy level to his people. They're not going to be able to hear any valid insults anymore, you know, as they could before. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think so, but, but thinking of Israel is more blended into the Messianic people of God. 
Certainly that's true as we go on through this. It's clearly messianic. Talk about it being a devourer of men going all the way back to before they took possession of the land is when they were calling them that. That's correct. The land's got a habit of that. Even before Israel was in there. Right, but when they took over the land, that they wouldn't have considered the land that. That's correct. But then the land turned and devoured them in the cap, you know, in the time of the captivity or before the captivity. Does say that? I don't know. It probably does, but I can't tell you that. In Chronicles, I don't know. Oh, it does. In Second Samuel, it talks about the land devouring people. Is that what you're talking about? There's something I read recently about the land devouring. That's it. It's in Second Chronicles. I was reading it. Oh, I can't. Oh, not Second Chronicles. Second Samuel. It's in Second Samuel. Right, right where we haven't studied yet. (laughs) 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 It's in chapter. Right where you haven't studied yet. It's oh. chapter 18. Oh, yeah, in the battle with Absalom. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, that's 18-8. Uh, yeah, I wasn't thinking about that. That's true. I thought about it because I just read it today. I'm impressed. And if you just read the whole Bible today, you could just... <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. What you have to do, read the whole Bible every day, and then you've always got all the time. Wow. No problem. All right. You could just, you know, read the basic principles and then be able to work the proof too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are these two hang all the long? That's true. <laughs> Anything else through fifteen? Sixteen to twenty-three. When the word of the Lord came to me saying. Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on their land, on their land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I have concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, the, therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been, pro, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Now, this is a very helpful thing in understanding more deeply what God was doing and why. We see some of the rationale, some of the, the reasons for what God did. First of all, why did God punish Israel in the first place? Because you filed the land with their ways and their deeds. Exactly. Their behavior in the land was disgusting and obnoxious to God. You know, it was, well, it was about a uh, not very nice uh, item uh, that a woman might wear in uh, certain times of uh, the year. And, uh, you know, that's the way God looked at that. Just disgusting. Just, uh, you know, not a, not a pleasant sight at all to God. 
the Lord uses pretty graphic language sometimes to, dis- to, to, to depict something that can only properly be depicted very graphically. And you know, what can you say that's disgusting enough to represent sin? And uh, so God did what to the nation? Poured out his wrath on them and scattered them, took them away, (laughs) dispersed them among the nations. That was God's punishment for their murder, for their idolatry, for their defiling acts. But look at what happens when Israel is deported, when when they're taken into exile. What did that do for God's reputation? Profaned his name. Why? Because of the justice of it. They still claim to be his people. They call themselves his people and said, we're following the Lord and look what's happening to us. So what did that make people think about God? He was weak. Yes. Either, if you think about this, the, you know, this is a, a society that really believes in the gods of the nations. And when Israel... Jehovah's people are exiled, that either means God just willingly abandoned his people, or he just wasn't God enough to defend them against the superior power of Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. Either way, it tarnishes God's reputation. Just by their being in exile, they profane God's name. Now, I bet God didn't know that was going to happen. No. So what does that tell you if God let it, God knew this was going to profane his name and he sent him into exile anyway? Yes. And to punish them for their sin. Probably both God's justice and God's love are satisfied in this, that he's willing to look like a weakling God to execute the justice that is needed. They deserve punishment, and they need it. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, you ever, uh, as a parent kind of find it a little uh, embarrassing to punish your children in front of other people, especially important people that you'd like to impress. You know, um, but, but you know, maybe you do it anyway. You don't think never. <laughs> we never get punished. <laughs> Whoa! We're perfect. Man, uh, I bet you'd get punished if you came to my house. We punish them all just for what they were thinking about doing. But, uh, you know, you might take a parent who, in spite of the fact it was going to be embarrassing to them, says either, this was so outrageous, it must be punished. Or, if I don't punish them, they're going to learn the wrong message, and I love them too much to let them get by without being punished, in spite of what I'm going to look like. So God let his name be defiled by the exile. But 
you know, what did God then do? By yes, God reverses the exile to prove that He is God enough to handle the Babylonians and anybody else. God would not let His name be permanently mocked as just another common loser among the gods. But that's a very important point that He's trying to make to Israel in the return. Why does he want them to understand that he's bringing them back to vindicate his own name? So I don't think that they've been good in the other lands and that's why they're coming back. Exactly. Recipients of God's grace sometimes delude themselves into thinking, well, I'm just so lovable, God just really wanted to bless me. Instead of thinking that God is acting for his own glory and reputation. He doesn't want Israel to get too proud. Do you remember what God said back when he brought Israel into the land in the first place? About that? When you grow too proud, I'm going to take you away, but I'll bring you back. That's one thing. But he also said in Deuteronomy 9.5, well, 9.4, Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess this land, but it is the wick- because of the wickedness of these nations. You know, in verse 6 he says, No, then it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess, for you are stubborn people. <laughs> so God doesn't want us thinking that his grace is because we're so good. We're stubborn people. We do not deserve God's grace. God's grace is because God is determined to be gracious. Because he loves us and he wants to bless us, not because we're just so good he just felt like he had to. That is an important lesson for Israel to learn right here. Comments and questions? What was the Deuteronomy passage? Deuteronomy 9, about 4 to 6. Okay. It's a good passage. It keeps down pride and self-righteousness when we really think, stop and think about it. It's, it's interesting how this this parallels Christ and how God was willing to let his son be defiled and, and <clears throat> defamed and all this for a while and then brought him back up and glorified him I mean, in that sense. And it had nothing to do with, in at least some sense, it had nothing to do with the people themselves and their goodness or badness or whatever. But this is what needed to happen, so it did. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. God does the right thing despite his reputation. Reminds me of Habakkuk. Yeah, it does a little bit. And that God's okay... Yeah, he's so strong that he doesn't have to constantly prove it. He's he, what was he's, he knows what he is, and he's not. Yeah, it's true. People can question him, and that doesn't make him feel insecure. Because I've been questioning him a lot. Yeah, yes. You know, in Psalm 
Also, 88, 89, and 44, none of them have written this thing. And he allows a lot more uh, questioning and a lot more honesty with him, even though it might seem a little impolite. All right, other comments or questions? Well, this next section is really rich as we see God bringing his people back to him. 24 to 32. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. But I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, moreover I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the fields, that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will love yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So, in verse 24, what was he going to do? Gather them from the nations and bring them back. All right. Back in the beginning when he promised them their land. That's true. Yes, that's exactly right. Or look at 19. He dispersed them away from their land. Now he brings them back to their land. In 25, what does he do? Clean them. Yes. Um, that's an interesting image if you stop and think about it. What all do we do to get rid of dirt? kind of products do we use? Soap. And... Water. And... <laughs> Industrial strength sandpaper on occasion. <laughs> yeah, and... Yeah, and... Moxy clean. Magic erasers. <laughs> yeah, and... Why soap? Yeah, and... <laughs> Just keep going. What else do we use? Glass cleaner. High temperatures. Mm, that's good. Fire. Sterilization. All sorts of disinfectants and purifiers and filters and deodorants and all, just all kinds of things. <laughs> Try to get rid of the dirt and the smell and whatever. And we need to see sin as that offensive. Sin is filthy and it stinks. And you remember, uh, you have to, uh, have to appreciate this. Remember Zechariah three, don't you? Yes. What was that? Joshua. Joshua in the temple, 
Yes, he was in dirty clothes. You remember the word dirty there probably refers yeah. to defiled by his own waist. You know, can you imagine? You know, run your clothes through the septic system and then, you know, then put them on. Why would God talk about that? Why would he give such disgusting figures of sin? Because we want to think it's not that bad. Probably still an understatement. <laughs> You're exactly right. That's exactly. You can't get disgusting enough to really depict sin. Someone has said when we see, when we feel, when we virtually smell our own filthiness, then the Bible language of cleansing is really good news. You know, this may we may pass over 25 hours, sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean, I'll cleanse you of all your filthiness from all your eyes and go right on. If we haven't realized how absolutely filthy and disgusting and horrifying we are when we're sinful. And how much we need God to cleanse us. I mean, I can't imagine, I can't really imagine, you know, just being covered in human waste. And I can only imagine what a huge relief it would be to be totally fumigated and purified and get nice starched clean clothes on. Well, that'd be awesome if you were in that situation. We are in that situation. We were horrible and filthy, and God has cleansed us. So that's a pretty powerful thing. And then 26, what will he do? Heart transplant. Exactly. Now that's interesting. Why a heart transplant? Seems a little old. Extreme. There's a problem that needs to be fixed. Well, yeah, I know, but transplant the heart? Can't we do something a little less radical? No. Why not? <laughs> it's too far gone. Yeah. Why don't we just clean up our act? Because you have to change your heart. It's against the root of the Exactly. The problem isn't just the behavior. It's the source of the behavior. It's the heart, the attitude, the mentality behind the behavior. God is not just going to, you know, clean us up. He's going to give us a whole new nature. Only a heart transplant could really change the, us like we need to be changed. And what was the change that was going to take place? How's this new heart going to be different from the old heart? He's going to go from being hard to being soft. Yes. Pliable. Yeah, don't you like the heart of stone to the heart of flesh? It's not going to be cold and petrified. It's going to be impressionable, sensitive, and moldable. Something that can grow. Yes. So, and something that can be shaped. Something to be touched. You know, that that's what we need. What people don't understand. People are looking for, you know, the some kind of social program, some sort of a do-good approach, you know, whatever. But what we really need is conversion, a whole new heart. And, uh, you know, when he does that, look at what happens in verse 27. What's the change that takes place? 
Yes, they will seek to do God's will. They'll be conscientious about it. That's what God wanted, obedience. And God gave them what he asked for. He gave them the heart and the spirit to obey him. Obviously, Israel was not doing very well with this, with the old heart. So God gives them a new heart and his own spirit so they'll do and be careful to do what he says. It's a really awesome passage. This is the new covenant. This is what it means to be born again. This is John 3 and Romans 6 in the Old Testament. And just an amazing passage. A little bit like chapter 11 of Ezekiel. But just really powerful, nevertheless. Thoughts and comments through 28. On verse 25. We're talking about all those different things that we need to clean stuff. Yes. In contrast, God's going to go, and you'll be clean. I mean, that's seriously powerful cleaning mechanism. No matter how much we try to clean ourselves, it's not going to work. But for God, even, you know, even a, a sprinkling, so to speak, of water is sufficient because he's so powerful. Right. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? 29 and 30, what was going to happen? He's going to bless them. And bless them with what? The first cleanness. Alright, going to save them from their uncleanness and then... Feed them. Yeah. Basically, the land itself seems to be rejuvenated with grain and fruitfulness. Uh, they won't be in famine anymore. So God was going to give them a new set of blessings. And then in 31 and 32, how were they going to change? What was going to happen to them? Think about how they had been. How, how are they going to be different? They're going to be humble instead of proud. Yeah. How, what's going to humble them? Their wickedness. And how are they going to feel about it? Bad. You know, we need this passage. I really like 31. I don't like 31, but I like 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I don't know. The psychiatrist probably wouldn't like us hating ourselves, would they? <laughs> we, you know, we're kind of into this era where we'll take any... You know, any approach to feeling good and not having to feel guilty. I'll tell you, it's horrible to feel guilty. But it's helpful to feel guilty. It hurts us when we don't. It hurts us when we, you know, do these short-term escapist things so we don't have to feel guilty. That really hurts us. You know, wow. 
I remember one of the first times I can remember telling a lie. Some of you heard me tell this story. I mean, just flat out telling a lie. I was a little, probably a little, about halfway in between Tasha and Ariel in age. And uh, Debbie probably doesn't remember this. I don't know if I've used this illustration with her or not. She was pretty young at the time. Uh, I don't remember whether it was here or the other house. But I remember that we had those bicycles with the handlebars like this, you know, the old-style bicycles. And, you know, they're supposed to have that kind of a plastic rubberish piece on the end of the handlebar. And, well, of course, those fell off or whatever. And so the handlebar was just kind of, the end of it was just this metal ring. And as I came tooling into the garage, I got a little too close to the car. And that handlebar just made a scratch down the side of the car. Yeah, I wouldn't think you would. Well, Dad, uh, I didn't, of course, say anything about that. I don't remember. It was a long one, I think. <laughs> and uh, Dad, that night at supper, asked uh, us kids if any of us knew who'd scratched that car. And none of us did. And I couldn't sleep that night. It just bothered me so bad. Man, it bothered me. And, you know, my dad was not exactly the kind of guy you wanted to confess your sins to. <laughs> but I couldn't live with myself. And I remember getting up and going into mom and dad and telling them I'd lie. Because it just hurt me. It just, I just couldn't, I couldn't have gone to sleep. You know, that was, those were the good old days. Hmm. When... Doing something like that bothered me. You know, unfortunately, we get to where we can commit sins that hardly faze us. The kind of change God wants to make in us is to where we hate ourselves over sin. We loathe it. And we feel horrible. And until we are willing to grieve and mourn over our sins, There'll never be this kind of transformation. Comments and questions? That really reminded me of uh, James 4 and uh, verses 7 to 10. It, especially when he talks about grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Just... You're right. It makes me think of that, too. James 4, 7 to 10. Yeah. And you know, he comes back in 32. This is a pretty good conclusion to this section. You know, I'm not doing this for your sake. <laughs> you know, he doesn't want us to think that the blessings come by our own righteousness. And I do believe he said that often enough to get the point across. But that section, 24 to 32, has just got to be one of the most spiritually rich sections in, in Ezekiel and maybe in the Old Testament. Comments and questions? I think he said the same thing about chapter 11. <laughs> well, it's a lot like chapter 11. <laughs> 
this is good stuff. All right, 33 to 38. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns, and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all those who pass through it. They will say, This land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So, look at, at, you know, the benefits that are going to take place. It kind of, it kind of summarizes some of what we've just seen. But in 33, what do we get? Yeah, cleansing and, and the land is, is re-inhabited. It's built back up again. You know, it's not desolate anymore in 34 and 35. Uh, but it's now like what? That's pretty cool. And uh, they will know that God has done it. And uh, verse 36. Um, then you see in verses 37 and 38, what will God do? their men like a flock. Okay, he'll he'll multiply them and 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 what else will he do for them in 37? What will he do? Let them ask. Yes, he will let them ask him to bless them. And think about earlier in Ezekiel. Like in 14:3 where God says they put idols in their heart, I won't should I be consulted by them at all? He doesn't want God to. They don't. God doesn't want them to ask him anything in fourteen three. He says the same thing in twenty three. I will not be inquired of by you. Don't you ask me anything. But now he's saying you can ask me, and I'll bless you, and I'll fill your cities uh, with the flocks of men. What was your second reference? Twenty verse three. Fourteen verse three and twenty verse three. So this is a tremendous transformation. For God's people. Comments and questions. It's interesting that he can pay them to a flock for sacrifices. Because that's what we're supposed to be. Yes, that's true. And I was going to ask, why flocks? As opposed to? I don't know. Families? I mean, why? Is there anything special about the sheep metaphor? Well, I, I don't know. Goats too. Maybe so. I mean, God's people are often thought of as sheep. He's the shepherd. Yeah. It seems pretty appropriate. Okay. There may be something else, but I don't know what. Comment about God allowing them to ask Him for blessings reminds me, you know, sometimes when we're upset with our kids and they start giving us excuses and stuff, don't even talk to me. Yes. Don't even talk to me. I don't want to hear it. 
It's a blessing when God is willing to hear. It reminds me of the promise to Abraham, because he talks about the land and the people. But I didn't exactly mention the other one as much. Remind me of Revelation, from the Garden of Eden, and being returned back to that. That's sort of like they're doing the same thing mm-hmm. here. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. Garden of Eden imagery is kind of a typical, like, God blessing his people after a punishment kind of a thing. And that's really the idea, you know, God brings them back into the paradise again after, after the punishment is over. So that's appropriate. Garden of Eden's used several times in the prophets. This almost looks like a key Ooh, cool. Where? <laughs> 30, 33 to 35, if you exclude the cleansing, you say, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, rebuilt, and then the land is cultivated. And then you'll have a garden and a fortified city and inhabited. So it's sort of oh, cool. not perfect, but the idea is there. Yeah. Very good. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Oh, my yeah. like no. favorite thing. They're cool. Oh, really? <laughs> they are. You have, you have different ideas. It's a matter of structuring, and you have ideas, and you go in like this. So, A, B, B, A. Or A, B, C, C, B, A. And so on. Like... Look at Second Samuel 21. If you studied with Gary very much, they're one of his favorite things. <laughs> and of course, they're one of all of our all of our favorite things, though, aren't they? Yeah. But. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something about kiosks in a minute that you all don't know, too. Whoa! I'll give you another I've been holding back. No, I found out some more this weekend. All right. Uh, This is the structure of the appendices sections here in 2 Samuel. In 21, 1 to 14, you have the famine because of sin, so a natural disaster because of sin. Then in 15 to 22, David's mighty men. And then in chapter 22, a psalm. So natural disasters are a result of sin. David's mighty men, a psalm. Now look at 23, verses 1 through 7. Another psalm. Look at 23, verses 8 to the end. David's mighty men. And then look at 24. The plague, a natural disaster as a result of sin. A, B, C, C, B, A. Isn't that cool? I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It is cool. We'll get you there. I think I remember this from the Leviticus study. No, now, but I'll tell you this. This might be enlightening to you, uh, or interesting at any rate. Um, This whole thing, this is kind of an interesting idea anyway, so I'll tell you. Uh, I went on Thursday and Friday to Johnson City, Tennessee, where there is an annual study by invitation only, for a group of about 25 preachers from all over. And that it's an awesome study, because what they do, we start at 2 o'clock on Thursday, end at 5 on Friday, but it's intensive. There are six speakers. They speak for 50 minutes apiece. And there are, there's a discussion period for 50 minutes, 
after each speaker. That's really helpful. And they pick different Bible books each year and usually deal with something fairly controversial or something that, you know, you'd have questions and discussions about. So this year was really interesting. It was really good. We did the Song of Solomon. And the Song of Solomon is very difficult to understand. There was an introductory lesson there by my brother-in-law, Alan Yader. And then there was a lesson on whether or not it was perhaps an allegory of Christ in the church or an anthology of random love poems. And then there was a guy who defended <laughs> There was a guy who James knows well, Kyle Slavaugh, who uh, defended the idea that it was a love story between two people. And then Leon Malden defended the idea that it was a love story between three people. Okay, it was kind of like the girl was being wooed by two different ones, and she finally went with her, you know, rustic shepherd lover. And then I gave, then there were two lessons that were not directly on the Song of Solomon. I did one on sexual temptation, another brother did one on um, marriage, basically. And, uh, but it was very interesting, because in Alan Yeager's uh, presentation on the overview, he showed us this enormous chiasm of the Song of Solomon. Probably had, I bet, at least 20 <laughs> stages. I'm not sure about that one. But, one, it's really a difficult book to interpret. And one of the other speakers, I can't remember which one, really did a good job of showing a little less, you know, uh, detailed chiasm that really involved the whole book, and I think maybe why. And it may be a way of helping us understand. Because one of the things that's hard about the Song of Solomon, it does appear to be a love story. But the problem is, the wedding occurs at the end of four and the first of five. But they appear to be together before that. And we have a hard time imagining that he's recommending that, you know, and so forth. But if it's a chiasm, then it's like, these are things that, the wedding's in the middle because it's just sort of the, the focal point. But coming out from that, are scenes describing their marriage. You know, on both sides coming out from that. So that it, it's not a chronological thing, it's sort of like scenes from the marriage, and in the middle is the climactic wedding. So that was an interesting thought. I'm not sure that's true, but that's where a chiasm, if that's right, that may help us in understanding what the book is really saying. That's free, you didn't have to pay for that one. So. Doesn't chiasm come from the letter X? The Greek. Or it the does. Hebrew, the, letter X? The, the Greek letter. So it's just, it's a visual, it's a, a visual with language of that structure. Does yes. that help? Yeah, because all right, uh, right the, the Greek right. letter chi, that's, that, that looks like that, looks like an X, except it's probably key in Greek. So the chiasm, think about if you have A, B, B, A. And you connect up the B's and you connect up the A's. You have to cross. So it's a key. If we're not completely satisfied, is the next one free also? <laughs> well, we'll see. I can't, I can't be giving out all this free stuff. Can the key as have a single center? Like A, B, C, yes. B, A? Yes, it can. It's not quite as common, but yes. It certainly can. I must say, I love key as they are very All right, cool. like brother, like sister. They are very cool when you see them. I always like them. And the thing that you guys have to understand is, oh, if you read some commentaries, every single everything is a chiasm. I don't buy all that. I don't. <laughs> I don't see them all that often. 
This is more selective. I'm a selective chiaster. How about this? Is the whole Bible story a chiasm with Christ in the center and Eden on this side and paradise on this side? Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's neat. You will never look at the Bible again. Here's the expression. This is a cold. I don't know what I got into coming to study here. Studying the Bible can be dangerous. So back to Ezekiel. Is this a dual meaning for the people and for? Probably a little bit. I mean, I think definitely the primary focus is in the Messiah. But I wouldn't deny that there's a typical fulfillment in the return from captivity and a more full fulfillment in the Messiah in Christ. I think so. Some of the language and the cities being inhabited and things like that seem tend to be a little more uh, literal than messianic. Yeah, although I think you know, we then ultimately think of the heavenly city that we have. But yes, I, I think there is both a typical fulfillment and a, you know, more right, idea. There's many things, there's a lot of things that point the other way, but then that, to me, it seems to be more literal. I, I think you've got both. I agree. Other comments and questions? I still see the inner revelation right there. I, it just seems like there's a lot with the cities inhabited and just the Garden of Eden and just, hmm? it seems revelation to me. Yeah. Was that a surprise? You would expect God. Not for me. I see everything. Revelation everywhere. Now. Yeah, God's blessings always take the same shape. Yeah, that makes sense. Every all of God's yeah. judgments are described in similar language. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Very cool. Other thoughts? I uh. I think it would be appropriate to stop here with this, and I want to tell you a couple of other things that I think might be uh, helpful for us to uh, talk about. Uh, some of this you know, and some of this you may not know completely. Um, but I think we could talk about a couple of things and then maybe pray together a little bit would be helpful. Um, do I, I guess all of you know about John Williams' accident? You know about that and so forth. And uh, he's doing really quite well, if you can be doing quite well with the broken neck.